Genesis 49, picking up in verse 1. It says, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships. His flanks shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens, and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a beautiful bough, a beautiful, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb and the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the spoil. And all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. And then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephraim the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, and there they buried Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Father, we ask that you would bless the study of your word this morning. We know that all scripture is God-breathed. So we understand today that this is no ordinary word. No ordinary book. 
this is the inerrant word of God. And it is living and it is active. And I believe there are principles here, Lord, that you intend to us to see. And not just to see, but to apply. So, Lord, my prayer today is, as we study your word, we'd not simply be hearers, but we would be doers also. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to first just kind of give us an overview. I think there's a, a more general principle that we're intended to see as we look at the uh, prophetic words, the blessings that Jacob gives to his sons here. And we're not going to look at every one of these sons. In fact, you come to a passage like this and there's uh, an argument to be made for a 12-point sermon. So, uh, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to try to keep it simple. I want to give you a generic principle and then I want to look at two of these sons that get a lot more verses than the others and are very significant in God's salvation history. But first of all, just the, the more general principle that we see from this, Jacob's words here are prophecy. His words are pertaining to things to come for each one of these sons, and not just the sons, but their family. And all of these boys do receive a, a blessing to some extent because they're all part uh, of the nation that God is producing through them. But we see here that some of them actually receive a rebuke. And you see there that Reuben, the firstborn, he's called the son of preeminence. He should be the one who receives the blessing of the firstborn. But he will not be in a position of preeminence because he lacks character. You remember, this is the son who defiled the, the, the marriage bed. He slept with his father's concubine. And so here is a man who is in a great position, but he has no character. And that's a recipe for disaster. Amen. You put a man in a position without any character, and not good things are probably going to come. And so God says you won't have a place of preeminence because you got no character. And then you come to Simeon and Levi, and they were next in line, and, and they're not going to be uh, the sons of preeminence either. They're not going to receive the blessing because they had an anger issue. You'll remember at Shechem, the when their sister uh, Dinah was raped and they got angry with the sons of Shechem and they just destroyed the entire place, men, women, and children. And God says you will not have a place of preeminence and the blessing will not fall to you. So many of these, I could go on and on, do not receive a blessing. In fact, they receive a bit of a rebuke. Some do receive a blessing, but their blessing, much like those who receive a rebuke, will come on the basis of their past actions. Meaning, it doesn't matter if it's a blessing or rebuke, the prophecy doesn't come from out of nowhere. It's simply an extension of their past actions. Meaning, these brothers, their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness will affect generations that come after them. And here's the very simple principle that I think we need to see and we don't want to look beyond one that we all know or we should know and we need to be reminded of again this morning is that our actions have consequences. That your faithfulness and your obedience affects generations that come after you. Your disobedience, your obedience to the Lord will affect generations that come after you. In fact, that's really the greater issue. The more specific point is that not only do actions have consequences, but normally the, the, the consequences aren't realized to their fullest extent in the life of the person who actually committed them. They're fully realized in the generations that come after them. Does that make sense? That your obedience or your disobedience will affect generations that come after us. 
That God has not created us in isolation. We don't live unto ourselves. God has put us in the context of families and communities. And so just to get more specific, who you are today as a father has far-reaching consequences. Who you are today as a mother has far-reaching consequences. Your obedience or disobedience will affect people that you will probably never even see with your own eyes. Our actions have consequences. Our faithfulness affects generations. That's the, the larger principle. But now what I want us to do is to focus on two of these sons who uh, the word of God gives a little more press and are incredibly significant in God's salvation work. And so let's look first at Judah. Look with me at verses 8 through 12. And you'll remember just to kind of remind us about Judah. Judah didn't get out to a good start. You remember Judah is the one who had a plot to kill his, his brother Joseph until he realized he could make more money off selling him than he could killing him. And so he sells him to the Ishmaelite traders this favorite son of his father, and then he lies to his father about what actually occurred. I, I really think that Judah got more of his father's deceitful traits than any of his other brothers. Judah was also a guy who kind of got sucked into the world. You remember he went to live among the Canaanites. He took a Canaanite wife. They produced a godless family with three godless boys. And so, boy, his life is not on a good trajectory. And you remember just when you thought things couldn't get any worse. We came to that great Valentine's Day weekend text in Genesis 38, and we realized it could get worse. And there we realized this guy committed all kinds of sins. Whatever sin you want to name, he was probably involved in it. He was involved in incest and immorality. But in Judah, we also saw a man who, who recognized his sinfulness. As he's confronted by Tamar and his own sin, in Genesis 38, 26, he admits, he comes forward, he comes clean, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty. You remember, he recognizes his sinfulness, and we begin to see a change in Judah. There's an acknowledgement of sin, and we see a heart of repentance and we see the transformation of God. Because in Genesis 42, you'll remember, we see the, the longest speech in all of Genesis as he stands before Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph, but he's standing before Joseph. And you'll remember, he's pleading for the life of his youngest brother, now the favorite son of his father, Benjamin. And he says to Joseph, take my life. I'll take the hit. I'll lay down my life, but let Benjamin go. And what we see is that, that Judah has been transformed by the grace of God this selfish, immoral, greedy sinner transformed by the grace of God into a sacrificial, compassionate man of God. That his judgmental heart, his, his anger and his antagonism appears to, to vanish. He loves his brother Benjamin and even his father, warts and all. And as we've moved through Genesis, what we have seen, even extending beyond Genesis 42, is you see more and more this family comes to see Judah as the leader. There's almost this kind of unspoken acknowledgement that, that, that Reuben and Simeon and Levi have kind of forfeited their right to the blessing and leadership, and now it has fallen to Judah. And so here Jacob, as he's on his deathbed, kind of breathing his last breaths, and as he's guided under the divine hand of God, he pronounces a remarkable blessing on this sinner who has been transformed by the grace of God. And, and you know, even uh, before Jacob begins to speak to Judah, I can't help but wonder if Judah is incredibly nervous. 
because he's, he's heard his dad speak to Reuben and Levi and Simeon, and he's really given them a rebuke for their sinfulness. And what does Judah know? He's not squeaky clean either. And he's thinking, oh no, here we go. I'm going to get a rebuke too. And yet look at what Jacob, his father, says to him in verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is portrayed as a victorious conqueror. He's portrayed as supreme over his enemies. And supreme not just over his enemies, but his brothers. There's, There's some allusion here even to Joseph's dream that his brothers would bow down to him. And we see here now that in Judah will come one to whom his brothers will bow down. And not only will they bow down to Judah, they will praise him. So the picture here is you've got a guy that's going to produce a family and there's going to be somebody from his family that both Gentile and Jew will bow down to him and praise him. And then you look on in verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. So Judah here is pictured as a lion. A lion that that comes down on his prey and then kills his prey and then lounges there, consumes what he wants, goes over under a shade tree, lays on his back and scratches his belly. Why? Because this lion has no natural enemies. Nobody dares come up against him. And then in verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter, the the ruler's staff, was symbolic of the king's authority to rule. That this family will retain the authority to rule, and it will culminate in one individual that the scripture refers to here as Shiloh. Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a Hebrew phrase that means he to whom it belongs. That the ruler's staff will not depart until he to whom it belongs. That this family will retain the authority to rule. And it will culminate in one person, one individual. It will begin with Judah. And then it's going to go to a guy named David. And it will go to a guy named Solomon. And then it'll eventually get to a guy named Joseph who will marry a woman named Mary. And through the seed of the woman will come the individual who will crush Satan's head, but he will be wounded in the transaction. Do you see what Jacob is prophesying here under the divine direction of God that from Judah is going to come an individual who's the fulfillment of the prophecy made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Through him is going to come the Messiah who will put down Satan and reestablish God's kingdom. What God is saying here is that my Messiah is going to come through Judah. Not through Reuben, not through Levi, not through Simeon. The blessing will come through this guy, this messed up sinner who recognized his sin and was transformed by the grace of God. He is the one through whom it will come. And then, and if you really want a picture of this, you got to look to Revelation, just to, as I've been previewing in my own personal study, Revelation to kind of prep, but Revelation 5, 1 through 5. John, you'll remember there, he's invited to the very throne room of God, and there he sees a scroll. And that scroll is a symbol for all God's covenantal purposes. And it's sealed up, and no one's able to open it. It's like God's last will and testament. If you're a father and you have a will, 
who is allowed to open it. It either has to be the mediator, the lawyer, or the only rightful heir. Well, here is the Father's last will and testament, and only one person can open it. No one else is able to open it. And so the angel proclaims in Revelation 5, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And there's no one able to open it. Scripture says no one in heaven, meaning no angelic authority, can open it. No one on earth, meaning no mere human, can open it. No one under the earth, meaning no demonic power, can open it. And John is relating this, and he just gets so caught up in the moment that he begins to weep in despair until finally in verse 5, one of the elders who obviously knew his Old Testament says to John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Isn't this the beauty of God's word? That every one of these prophecies will come to perfect fulfillment, including the prophecy that from Judah will come the Messiah. And we see it come to fruition in Revelation chapter 5. As the lamb who was slain is the lion of the tribe of Judah who comes to establish his kingdom and to put down his enemies and he will rule and reign forever. And the picture of that prophecy is right here in Genesis 49. Here he is, Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says here in Genesis 49, and to him is the obedience of the peoples, that every knee will bow to this man. Every tongue will confess. And in Genesis 49, 11, it says, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine. That from Judah will come this king, this Messiah, and he will be so humble that he will ride in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Do we know anybody like that, that we just studied on Palm Sunday, who rode in on the colt, the foal of a donkey? And it says he will tie his colt to the choice vine. You don't tie a colt to the vine. Why? Because he will eat your grapes. But the picture here is there's so many grapes, it don't matter. That this king is going to put down his enemies. In fact, it says here that his garments are washed in wine. That his robe will be stained purple as he put down, puts down his enemies. That this king is going to come and he will put down his enemies and he will usher in a kingdom of great blessedness and great joy. Don't we long for that day? That one day Christ is coming. The final prophet, priest, and king. And he will put down all his enemies. It's prophesied right here in Genesis 49. Verse 12, his eyes are full from wine and his teeth white from milk. Milk and honey flow in abundance and from which of these boys? Which of these boys does this Messiah come? He comes from Judah. To me, this is one of the greatest demonstrations of the love and the mercy and the grace of God. That one of the greatest titles of our Savior will be that he is the, the lion from the tribe of Judah. That Christ, think about this for a moment. Christ is going to come. His lineage will involve the most messed up of all these 12 boys. And not only the most messed up of all the 12 boys, but he will actually come from the lineage of the most messed up moment within the messed up boy. And you have to ask yourself, why in the world would God do it this way? 
And we've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating again. I believe that God did it this way because if somehow Christ came from a lineage of perfect people, we would be tempted to think that in order to enter into God's family, you've got to be perfect too. But God has established it in such a way that the lineage of Christ is from a bunch of messed up sinners who simply recognized that Christ was their only means of salvation. They were transformed by the grace of God so that you and I could know that in order to enter into God's family, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be a sinner who recognizes Jesus as your only means of salvation. Isn't that good news? It's why as we've studied these patriarchs, I'm again just overwhelmed That one of God's favorite titles is, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of deceivers and sinners who trust in me. And my Savior is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. To remind that he's come to save sinners like us. But then I also want us to look at Joseph. Look at Joseph in verses 22 through 26. We don't have time to go into all these verses. We've just read them. But the picture here is a shepherd boy who becomes prime minister. In verse 23... He's attacked by his brothers. Uh, He's attacked by Potiphar. There's all these people attacking him. All these people trying to attempt to, to thwart the purposes of God. And yet what we see in verse 24 is that God used the pain. God used the attacks to make him steadfast. To grow his faith. And his faithfulness to the Lord. And then in verse 25, he was kept specifically by the power of God. And then we see the remarkable blessings that flowed. But to me, as you read this, there's one element that's missing. As you read the blessing pronounced upon Joseph, there's an element that's missing. Because let me just ask you, if you were reading Genesis, and the problem is we know the end of the story. We've read all this before. We know what happens. But if you were reading Genesis for the very first time, you didn't know the story. If you were reading it for the first time, and you had just finished Genesis 48, and you were to enter into Genesis 49, and you were told that Jacob's going to pronounce the blessing, and I were to ask you, which one of these boys will be the one through whom the Messiah would come, who would you say? Joseph. Every time, we just say, it's got to be Joseph. I mean, Joseph is the the focus of so much of the latter end of Genesis. This is a guy who does so much great work for the Lord, and then all of a sudden, he just kind of fades away. I mean, he's mentioned in the Old Testament a little bit here and there, but he kind of just fades into the background. And you know what you begin to to realize? You begin to realize that the story really really wasn't about him. God uses Joseph to save half the world and to save God's covenant people. And then, and then after all that Joseph has accomplished for the Lord, it appears that God just moves on from him. And what's amazing is you see no real anger or disappointment on the part of Joseph. You know, I love to put myself in the shoes of these individuals. And if I had been Joseph, quite frankly, I'd been mad. I've been ticked off. God, you gonna, you gonna let the Messiah come through Judah? He, he, he tried to kill me. God, did you read Genesis 38? You, 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 you realize what this boy did, right? And yet you, we, we, we're gonna study Genesis 50. You, no animosity. No sense of revenge towards his brother. No anger. Just a sweet and gracious submission to the perfect plan and purpose of God. 
You know, what we see here, it's the same thing we've seen in all of Joseph's life. It doesn't matter if it was the pasture with the sheep. It doesn't matter if it was the prison with a bunch of criminals or in the palace with the elite. You always see a guy who's just resting in the sovereign purposes of God. And then at the end of it all, his life just kind of fades into the greater light of the glory of God and the Messiah. You might even say it this way, the more that Joseph grows the more that Joseph decreases and the more that God increases. And this is really the sign of true biblical spirituality. I mean, you've heard me say this before, but it's easy to preach on humility. Oh, boy, I'll tell you what, it's easy to preach on humility. But it's a totally different deal to respond well when you're not treated as you think your form deserves. When you aren't treated as you think you ought to be treated. And to respond in grace. And to trust in the perfect plan and sovereignty of God. That the heart of the true believer is that God can use me or God can set me aside. He can raise me up or he can lay me low, but his glory is all that matters. And faithfulness to him is all that I seek. You know, as I, as I was saying this, some examples came to mind. Number one, you remember the church at Antioch in Acts. Who, you know who really establishes the church at Antioch? You know who really gets it going? A guy named Barnabas. Barnabas gets this church pumping. It is going. God is moving He's the church planter. He's the church founder. He's the man. He's getting it going. And you know what? When it's just about to really take off, guess what he does? He says, you know what? I think there's somebody else that can lead this deal better than me. You know who he goes and gets? He goes and gets Paul. Folks, this is unheard of today in church world, church planting world. The guy who gets it going and just says, there's somebody else that can lead this deal better than me. I'm going to go get him and then I'm just going to fade out of the room. But that's the picture of the believer who says, you know what, it doesn't have to be about me. It's about the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. It's it's the picture of the transfiguration. You remember the transfiguration? Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up that Mount of Transfiguration. And there they get to see, as, as Peter says later, they get to see the prophetic word made more certain. And Jesus kind of gives them a glimpse of his glory. But you'll remember, as they're on that mount, there's two other individuals who are there. Do you remember who it was? Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets are right there. Moses and Elijah are right there with Jesus. But then at the end of it, guess what happens? They look up and Moses and Elijah are gone and only Christ remains. Because as great as Moses and Elijah were, as great as the law and the prophets were, they only existed to point to the greater glory of Jesus Christ. And that is all of us as believers. All of our lives just pointing to Christ and his glory. I I was reminded I mentioned uh, the new Midwestern publication that, by the way, I was blessed by. I shared some of it with you last week. But 
I was reminded of Charles Spurgeon again. There's a story of a group of American pastors who traveled to London in the 1880s to hear some very great preachers. They went to one church um, on one Sunday and they heard a pastor, a prominent pastor, a great church, 3,000 member congregation that was there and they heard some great preachers. They walked away saying, what a great preacher. And then the following week, they went to Metropolitan Tabernacle and they heard the great Charles Spurgeon preach. And they walked away and said, what a great savior. And there's a big difference. See, the beauty of the Bible is that we're constantly reminded that there's only one hero. And it's Jesus. Everybody else just fades into obscurity. As a pastor, I go to a lot of funerals. And one of the things I've realized, it doesn't matter how great a person thinks they are. Very very few of us, for the most part, all of us, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have a little service. People are going to speak some kind words. You're going to go eat some fried chicken. It's all over, all right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Just be encouraged. That's what's going to happen. We're often a whole lot greater in our own minds than we actually are. And all of our lives are just intended to point to the greater glory of Jesus. And when you go to those funerals, you're reminded that all that really matters are the the ripples of their life that impacted people with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you three quick reminders. We'll be closed. Number one, no matter what you've done or where you've been, pursue faithfulness. Make faithfulness the one goal of your life, the one passion of your life. If you make anything other than faithfulness to Jesus Christ the passion and the goal of your life, you will one day end up very, very disappointed. Just pursue Christ. Pursue faithfulness to him. And your faithfulness today has the opportunity to impact generations that come after you. You know, every time I go through this and I'm reminded that there was a woman, a very obscure lady named Leola Huff, who actually born in Texas, migrated up to Oklahoma, lived in obscurity, got married. The the man she married was not a believer, but this woman, Leola, made a decision, I'm going to take my kids to church. Didn't make a lot of fanfare, didn't make a lot of fuss. But she just said, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. And she took her four children to church every Sunday. One of those children was a lady named Margaret. And Margaret went to church and heard about the good news of Jesus Christ and trusted in Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. And as she was following Jesus, she met up with a man named Dan. And her and Dan followed Christ, were faithful to him. They had three children, the youngest of which was a snot-nosed, knuckle-headed brat named Chad. And I'm reminded often that I exist here today primarily because there was a woman who existed in obscurity who was just faithful to God in her generation, and it ended up impacting generations that came after her. What legacy are you leaving today? 
You don't live unto yourself. Your faithfulness today will impact generations. Your unfaithfulness today will impact generations. Secondly, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, trust Christ. Because what we see here, that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the salvation is not reserved for the religious, it's not reserved for for the intelligent. You don't have to make a 36 on the ACT to get into heaven. Amen? You, maybe a 21 will get you in. I don't know. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to be beautiful. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be the elite. You know what you have to be? You have to be a sinner who recognizes the depth of your sin in Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation. And guess what? You get to become a child of God. And the Lord says, come enter my family, trust in Christ. And then finally, no matter what the outcome, rest in the sovereignty of God's perfect plan. Because you might trust in Christ today. And he may raise you up and he may lay you aside. Now, one of the things that's very humbling, you go to do, when we go to do international mission trips and you I get a chance to meet pastors and uh, I'm telling you these men are heroes they serve and there's no real fanfare in many places they serve the Lord and they're persecuted and I often walk away saying God why why does this great man of faith get to serve you here where he's dishonored and experiences pain for preaching the truth and why do I get why do I get to be here and I don't pretend to know God's ways but I'm going to be honest with you this morning you trust in Christ he might put you on the stage or he might put you in the back of the room he may give you riches he may give you poverty he may give you rejoicing he may give you suffering God is just but he's not always fair But let me tell you what he will give you. He will forgive you of your sins. Your sins will be as far as the east is from the west. If you trusted him today, he'll give you himself. He'll place his Holy Spirit in your heart. And he will never, ever leave you. And he'll give you heaven. An eternal inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So you know what we do today? We just trust him. As I was studying this, I was reminded of John Wesley's covenant prayer. In fact, this week I printed it off and I've read it every day this week. Sometimes multiple times. Listen to his prayer. Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours, so be it.
Is that your heart today? To lay everything down at the feet of Jesus and trust him and his perfect plan with a sweet and gracious submission to him. Knowing his plan is perfect and best. Let's pray together. Father, we, as we conclude our time here this morning, I, I just want to pray right now for anybody that's listening online or maybe at Reach Church DeSoto this morning or maybe they're right here in this room that doesn't know you. They've, they've never placed their faith in Christ. They've never even thought about the redemption that he has provided. God, I pray today that they would recognize the depth of their own sin. God, I pray that while they might think they're pretty good in comparison to a bunch of other sinners, I pray that they would realize today that the standard of your judgment is not other people. The standard of judgment is your holiness. And in light of your holiness, we are all condemned. We've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We are all children of disobedience and objects of your wrath. But God, I pray that you would direct their hearts very quickly to Christ who died on a cross for their sins. Who took the punishment for what they had done. Who drank the cup of your wrath so that all men could know your salvation as a free gift of grace through faith in you. I pray this morning, Lord, that your kindness would lead them to repentance. Your overwhelming love demonstrated on the cross would lead them to a place of turning from their sinful past and turning towards Christ as their only means of salvation. And I pray today they'd be reborn by the Spirit of God. Father, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would commit ourselves to faithfulness. Regardless of what that brings. Lord, I pray that the one passion of our life would be faithfulness to you. And that we would not grow weary in well-doing, knowing that in due season we'll reap if we do not faint. Pursuing faithfulness, knowing that there's no better, no safer place to be than in the center of your will. Thank you for your grace, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.